Hi everyone, David here. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Foresight Climate and Energy. If you like what you hear and want access to more of our fascinating in-depth content on the energy transition, you need to subscribe. You can try us for 30 days for just 29 euros, which will get you full access to our website and app. We also have a wide range of subscription packages to fit you or your company's needs. Follow the link in the show notes or go to www.foresightdk.com forward slash subscribe to find out more. Hello and welcome to episode 32 of What Matters, the podcast from Foresight Climate and Energy. I'm Sam Morgan, filling in today for your regular host, David Weston, who will be back next time. But joining me today are Agora Energy Vendors, Michaela Hall and Oliver Sato. How are you both? Great. Thanks Very for well. asking. Very well, thanks. A little bit of a quirky, quirky throat today, but otherwise well. Fantastic. Now, the topic we're going to be getting into today um, is one that has fascinated policy and political analysts for quite some time now, as well as probably every journalist in Europe, uh, given how it has had one foot in the world of climate action and the energy transition, uh, with another in the murky world of geopolitics. Um, I'm talking about the Carbon Border Adjustment Mechanism, or CBAM, an EU-developed initiative uh, which aims to impose financial penalties on certain imported goods that do not adhere to strict sustainability criteria. Uh, the idea is basically to level the playing field and try to make sure that domestic producers of materials like steel and cement uh, are not undercut by cheaper imports that hail from regions of the world that do not yet regulate emissions the same way the EU does. Sounds complex? You betcha. Uh, but today, in addition to Michaela and Oliver, we're lucky enough to be joined by Mohamed Shahim the member of the European Parliament who led work on developing CBAM and helped broker an agreement on the new policy last year. He's going to help us dissect what CBAM means for the energy transition and what the future holds for this new anti-climate dumping superweapon. Mohamed, thank you so much for joining us this morning. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you for having me. It's uh, excited to be here, but I'm um... I hope that you will not grill me too much because there are some really good experts in the, in this podcast. We'll try our best to uh... work. <laughs> but, but, but Sam, Sam, can I please, please already say one thing? Because you were talking about penalties. I don't think CBAM is a penalty. I think it's a, if you would use a term, I would say a pollution. Premium. That's nice. That's good. I'll, I'll add that to the list <laughs> of terms to use. Um, I guess well, let's kick straight off with you know what CBAM actually is. Carbon border taxation as a more global concept. Um, it's an idea that's been around for quite a while. Lots of people have said we needed it for a while. What was the main spark that meant we went from near theory and things on paper um, to at this point where we're near actual implementation now? What was the sort of clicking off point that meant that you could get to work, basically? I mean... From a political point of view, because it's, uh, I mean, I, I, I think whenever, when the Green Deal was presented with the ambition it had, I think the commission was seeking or looking for um, an instrument where they could, um, um, well, let's say, correct some of the issues we have in the emission trading system. For example, the free allowances that had an effect on, let's say, the, of the real carbon price. Um, and uh, in order to do that and to create a level playing field to make sure that you, yeah, that, you know, investors do invest in decarbonization technologies, you need an instrument to prevent carbon leakage. Um, and this instrument as a substitute for the, let's say, the 
current instrument, which is basically giving away free allowances to industry, is the carbon border adjustment mechanism. And it makes sense. So the more you, ambition you have when it comes to decarbonization, investing in clean tech, basically making sure you can absorb the extra cost associated with, with these clean tech investments, then you need a mechanism to create a level playing field. And I'm going to tell you, the Europe will not be the only region. I, I expect other regions to, to follow really soon. If you look what the Americans are doing with the IRA, with the Inflation Reduction Act, it really makes sense to reassess this global, um, let's say, level playing field when it comes to regions where you have vast investments in clean tech or carbon measures and regions where this is not the case. And, you know, this is the only way to incentivize others to join us. So you think the IRA is a direct consequence of, 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 of uh, the EU deciding a CBAM? No, not necessarily CBAM. You know, some people in the EU are talking about IRA. We need to react on the IRA. I always tell them we can also do the other way around. We can approach the IRA as, an action, as a reaction on the European Green Deal. Mm. Um, I, I, I mean, I'd somehow, you know, I'm not that, you know, when it comes to trade discrepancies, I am critical and the protectionisms yeah. in the IRA. When it comes to what they're doing, this is basically what we've, asking the, we've asked them to do for, let's say, at least a decade. So finally, the Americans are also you know, showing ambition when it comes to uh, decarbonization. The instruments that they use are typically American. You know, this is not the way we do it. It's basically, they only have carrots. We have basically carrots and sticks. Um, <laughs> well said. <laughs> I mean, it's always good when you, you know, I'm a father of two young children. If you only have carrots, it's not, you always have to be, sometimes have to show some, some, uh, some let's say, uh, borders uh, where they know what the limit is. And uh, this is how we do it in the US. So, yeah, for me, I would say that I raise a response to the European Green Deal or to green tech investments globally, because we're not the only ones in the world. There are, there are also other countries that, are not standing still. Look at the investments that are Ch the Chinese are doing, the Japanese, the Koreans. Um, so yes, I think it's a global reaction. Finally, the US is also joining the decarbonization race. This, is, this will be my conclusion. You mentioned um, you expect other parts of the world to either design their own CBAM or do something similar. Are there any other countries already that you think are sort of next to be in line? I know the UK and maybe Japan are, are thinking about it. Do you think that we'll see someone have their own CBAM soon? Or? I've been talking to many ministers from other countries, and I can tell you that, uh, I mean, I cannot name drop anything. Come on, come Because on. it's not me to do that. But um, I, I know that several countries are really seriously developing the same concept or a similar concept. And, uh, but there also, there was, I was also surprised a bit about India. India wants to, and, and they have every right to do that, challenge CBAM on the, on the WTO. But at the same time, they want to develop their own CBAM based on historic emissions, which is quite interesting. And I'm, I'm really, I mean, last weekend, I was really thinking about it, you know, from a scientific point of view, how could you do it? I'm really interested to see if this could be done. I mean, it's fairly complicated, but some kind of correction factor for historic emissions, I think from an, from an Indian perspective, I think that's fair. And I, I would really encourage them to further develop that. That would be a better response than, you know, challenging the EU at the WTO, looking at the case-by-case -case study, what is happening, and then, you know, getting a, 
a result in, in if you if you're lucky in a couple of years uh, but i don't think it will significantly change the the core of the legislation that we're working on so i would i would encourage india to further develop and i'm i would love to have a discussion with them to see how this then could be could be uh, could be implemented i mean this is the way forward it's easy to challenge people and say i don't agree on what you're doing but let's first see whether we can align some things that i think that's better now for for uh, for climate as well at the end yeah i mean i, I would also just on on mohammed's point that there um there will likely be more cbams popping up i think that um you know the cbam was not implemented just to punish or to tax things at the border um it was it's because the eu already has a quite aggressive policy to regulate emissions from uh, energy intensive industries like steel cement aluminium that are traded internationally and so if you do that you have this risk of carbon leakage that he mentioned now one of the things is that the eu has actually been an early mover compared to the rest of the world in being so ambitious with its regulation of these industries but what you see is um in in the wake of the paris agreement and as climate action picks up around the world more and more countries are now addressing this new frontier of the industry part of the transition right previously they were focusing on how to decarbonize electricity maybe some transport with electric vehicles but now they're addressing industry and as they address these industries they'll face the exact same problem that the eu faces which is that you don't want to just have your industry move offshore and not reduce its emissions so you see you know countries like the uk which is you know which has its carbon prices is talking about a cbam canada is talking about a cbam australia now with a new government is talking about a cbam uh, so so you know and even the us which maybe carbon pricing in the us is complicated to get through the congress there but they themselves actually you know would like by talking about uh, having some sort of co2 product requirements that might lead to some cbam like instrument right down the road so so i think that the eu is what the eu is doing is is i think a necessary part of of the package that you need to decarbonize industry even if there might be more than one way to design the 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 instrument i had no idea the cbam was such a global hit with well, other countries call, interesting call, call, calling it okay. calling it a, a global hit might be a little bit strong <laughs> <laughs> i mean we know that these negotiations were really tough and and dragged on quite a while mohammed i mean what were kind of the biggest sticking points from your side that you you really wanted to you know overcome and convince others of your opinion and and you know were you satisfied with the outcome do you think that there was things missing from the final agreement you know what what was the result look like for you i mean i think it's always out to ask the oliver maver and nikela what they think about the end result because i didn't to be fair i haven't had a lot of reflections on it uh, because when you are negotiating you're basically in a bubble and then and then you're so tired that you really need a break and and then it's a bit you know time passes and then you're you know focused on other teams um uh, yeah i think i think we did a very really good job looking at the perspective that we had the starting position of parliament the sensitivities that were there in parliament i mean you know it wasn't that easy to get these very complicated legislations through parliament we had a let's say quite some uh, interesting votes um, about emission trading system but also cbam with which are really closely related i had i had uh, i had the privilege to be also in the negotiation team of the emission trading system the ets re uh, revision uh, so i was really closely involved basically to um, also look at the phasing out also as a rapporteur of cbam i was invited but it was also good that i was a shadow on that on that team uh we really i mean all the fights that we had at some point you know 
it really helped us understand each other better. And I really felt that at the end, the parliament team, and it didn't even matter from which political group, was one team. We were fighting for the position of parliament. And, you know, you know, you know, surpassing our only only the group's interests. We were really a team. And that helped us, you know, really get some things done that most people didn't expect uh, to happen. I mean, the phasing out percentage, just to know, we were at 50%. The council was at 30%. We got 48.5%. Uh, the only way to get there is to be united and to be very stubborn, uh, especially in the late hours. <laughs> um, I mean, uh, I, I think also, you know, um, taking care of some of the, uh, let's say, um, um, issues, for example, the export uh, rebate, you know, the position of parliament was a bit too much, uh, if, I, if you ask me, but of course I have to defend it. I think the result that we had was a good combination where we punish, uh, let's say, uh, um, producers that really are uh, delaying their decarbonization that belong to the 20% worst performance. And we use those uh, free allowances that we get back from them to help, let's basically decarbonize export incentive industries, which is, you know, a, a knife that cuts on both sides, which is really uh, interesting to see that you know to see it develop to be part of that team because it really this was really something that was developed in the last hours of the negotiation so at the end of the day i'm very i'm satisfied um i'm very satisfied that we include indirect emissions and we get a let's say from the beginning but then we do a derogation for the for the sectors that are part of the state aid uh, regime uh, i have to be a bit technical here um, i'm very happy that we introduced hydrogen although it's not that highly traded today and there's no um, a lot of green hydrogen being produced but i mean i think this is a it makes sense looking at where we will be in in five to ten years and then we want to have a level playing field where when you invest significantly in the eu to produce green hydrogen i mean you cannot compete with let's say fossil hydrogen coming from any other country and we need to have these different technologies that are defined in the annexes uh, that distinguish between the different colors, and I think that really helps industry uh, to to you know co to continue invest in this really important clean technology. Um, so yes, but there's one but. We know that climate legislation is very complicated, and there are member states that get doubts in the last second of the race. Who are you talking about? Nobody knows what so you're talking let's, about. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea what this means. <laughs> Is it? Should I really elaborate? Somewhere between France and Poland, right? In the middle somewhere. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. <laughs> already too many countries between those. But in any case, <laughs> in any case, so I hope not. Because, uh, but I, I mean, there are, no, there are no signs that it will happen. But again, fair. There were no signs that the other thing could have happened. I can't believe Luxembourg did this. So let's, let's... Let's let's cross fingers. Let's cross fingers and uh, let's hope the vote on the I think the eighteenth of April uh, of April, which is uh, it still needs to be voted. I didn't yeah, know. Yeah, okay. okay. Still needs to be voted, and then uh, I think the week after in council. And okay, um, yeah, for me it will be really interesting because the eighteenth of April is my birthday, so it would be a very nice gift. Oh, uh, closing yeah. this this file. <laughs> yeah let's see let's see let's see. Oli, you worked a lot on this export question i'd love to mm. 
if you came in on it. I remember you working a lot on it. Oh, yeah, no, the, the export thing was it was a critical part of the of the package. But just before that, though, I wanted just to go back to the to the question um, of because of, Mohammed asked us what did we think of the final yeah, outcome. Please, um, I I think the final outcome is is by and large excellent. Right, like uh, there's always some things in EU legislation that you don't wow. agree with, right? But but this coming <laughs> from Oliver, yes, but but no, I mean there were like the CBAM was an extremely uh, you said it before, Sam. It's it's a it's a it's a necessary step at the moment for the EU, but it was extremely complicated technically and politically, right, and also diplomatically, right, and and also legally as well, actually, because of the, some of the the needs to conform with the World Trade Organization rules, uh, and I think that that. There was a very, very like fine landing point, you know, for the the trilogue to stick, and I think they 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 got it actually quite well. So, you know, it covers as as, as much of the emissions from these industrial sectors as you as you could at this point. So, I think a little bit more than fifty percent of the emissions from industry in the EU, which is which is a lot. And, and by the way, just to give people a sense of what that means, currently, as Mohammed said, we give free allowances to these industries, and we the, at at hundred euros a ton, which is the current carbon price. The, the, that's about 40 billion euros a year that we are giving to industry in, in money that could be otherwise spent on the transition to clean technology, right? So, so taking, you're taking away 20 billion that you're, that you're basically going to start to get back from industry to start to reinvest in the transition as this reallocation phases down. And that money will go indeed, as, as Mohammed said, into the uh, thing called the Innovation Fund, um, which will, will um, basically provide, it will do calls for tender and support, you know, deep decarbonisation projects for breakthrough technologies in these sectors, which is exactly what we need to do for the transition. It will make sure there's a... It will help the Net Zero Industry Act, basically. Yeah, exactly. Th that's the way we are yeah. We are doing our Net Zero Industry Act. We're not just providing subsidies to anyone who wants yeah. to come. We're saying, show us a really good project and you'll get this money back from the Innovation Fund. Well, we need to take out... Um how you say adverse subsidies first, right? <laughs> yeah, we true. have to yeah, clean yeah. our act here also. Yeah, but but I mean also, I mean, there's also, yeah, yeah, there are also some clever things which were introduced immediately, but which I think will, will come in down the road, which will have a good, I think will be important for the mechanism to be robust uh, in the longer term. So for example, um, indirect emissions. So indirect emissions are basically the electricity that you use or, 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 or sources of heat that, that come from off your, that are produced off your site that you then use at your site to produce. Um, ultimately, for industry to decarbonize, it, it will need to electrify massively, either directly or indirectly using hydrogen. And so therefore, an effective CBAM has to include those sources. And, and, and here, Mohammed and the parliament fought very hard to make sure that was that was locked in, in the legislation. Now, yeah. it, there, as, as you said, there are some, there are some derogations and there, there's some timeline to phase it in, but, but it's there now. And so we would expect that. To yeah. And, and Oliver, I, I, I was visiting a, a very big chemical site, uh, I think just a couple of weeks ago. And I was amazed by, I mean, this was a company that was not supportive on on, on, on CBAM at all. At all. Um, and they had the plan to basically uh, decarbonize their indirect emissions within one year. So which was, I was shocked. And they also had a total different vision on CBAM today than they had, let's say, a year ago. Also, a lot of things happened in between. Energy prices are, you know, <laughs> went through the rooftop. So also for these high intensive energy sectors to decarbonize means also to have a mechanism that helps basically uh, not protect, but at least make sense that there's a level playing field in, in the European market. But 
I believe with, with the, the fact that this really big concern was saying that they will decarbonize their indirect emissions within one year. I believe in the next years, industry will beg the commission to include indirect emissions and get rid of the derogation. Because for some sectors, the indirect emissions are make more sense than direct emissions. And that is basically where the where the difference can be made, especially when you decarbonize your electricity. And I also got a lot of, uh, I mean, there are also sectors that don't get free allowances and that are not, uh, uh, or that are not, sorry, that are not part of state aid. Uh, so, and they were really happy with the, the inclusion of the indirect emissions from the start, because for their competitors, it means that they need to start paying for the indirect emissions also uh, the moment uh, CBAM enters into force. Yeah. Okay, I have to ask, may yeah. I ask Mohamed Oliver, you are yeah. too specialized here. Um, I heard about it in the context of hydrogen. So basically at the moment for the first phase, we would not factor in the indirect emissions of the electricity. We would regulate direct mm -hmm. emissions of a fossil-based hydrogen produced, but we would not look at the indirect emissions in the electricity mix. Is that correct? Because that was a lot discussed in the context of hydrogen and makes sense because as you might know, we spent two years deciding these rules in this delegate, famous delegated act um, about how gray can green be mm -hmm. if it comes from the, yeah. from the plug, right? So, okay. So how does that then fit together? How will they, uh, so... Because this so hydrogen is a bit complicated yeah. because hydrogen is formally a sector that gets state aid. Yeah, which basically means that indirect emissions are not in, uh, calculated. What is the rationale behind uh, this? Yeah, so the rationale behind this is that the the so state aid means that indirect cost compensation, basically. So comp uh, governments have the possibility, member states to apply the, for the indirect or costs occurred to basically the electricity in Europe being taxed under CO2, under the emission trading system, and not getting any free allowances. They, the assumption is that they pass this cost through their, to the customer, they do cost pass through, and the customer, basically the produ producers, use this electricity, and then they get compensated by the government for that. That's the, under the state aid rules, it's possible. So if you're on the list, uh, it's done. And then member states decide to do it. I think currently 11 out of 27 member states apply this rule. It's not even every member state. So when you're on that list, you, if, so the, when you're on that list, there is this option to apply indirect cost compensation. So it would not be fair on the WTO, I believe, that your competitors coming from outside Europe have to pay for the indirect emissions at the border, and the European companies get a state aid for that. Oh, okay, I see. So that's the rationale behind okay. it. However, for, for, for green hydrogen, yeah, you use 100%, basically, well, almost, your emissions are the, 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 the defined through the electricity that you use, because it's electrification. So that is a bit more complicated. So, because if you don't, uh, okay, if, if you don't, it's very hard to compare Fossil-based hydrogen, where you have a clear CO2 emission, and of course green hydrogen. But for green hydrogen, it's, it's not it's not problematic because it's it's green, so there are no emissions associated. Well, a, a little emission associated with electricity use. Huh. But then you have to have to have to have this guarantee that the electricity is then based basically 
not taken from the grid, but it should be then green. But we will work on okay. that. The commission will work on that in the, couple, in the next years. But, and then I think for hydrogen, it will not be very important whether you get indirect cost compensation. That I think, you know, this hydrogen bank, carbon contract for difference, those will be the key instruments and not necessarily being on this list because this list is only interesting for basically, let's say, the, um, the hydrogen being produced at, you know, as a byproduct, basically, mm. even in these, in these big chemical sites. So that will probably shift. And I believe that then hydrogen will be taken off the state aid list because there will be other instruments. And then the principle, and then we don't have mm-hmm. to change legislation because it's already in the CBOM legislation. The moment it takes, it's taken off the, yeah. the state aid list, indirect emissions are applied. Okay. Basta. Basta. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So that, I mean, this, and again, uh, um, you have to imagine you know, that the chemistry between the members of parliament in these negotiation teams, but also with the, with the, you know, the political advisors and the assistants, you know, there were so many good people in the different teams that we could come up with these type of creative solutions. Uh, and, and of course, there was also a lot of good collaboration between um, the parliament, the council and the commission. Uh, also, the commission uh, working on this on this topic uh, were very ambitious were very helpful and provided, you know, answers at the latest hour of the night, um, which was which was really helpful because at the end of the day, we take decisions also based on facts and based on data. And the uh, commission was a really honest broker and they had a great team providing us with the information uh, we needed to take decisions. And also, to be fair, you know, also industry and a lot and the scientific community, had, had they were really interested in CBAM. And they were providing us with really interesting, uh, interesting papers. I mean, Oliver was was I I I've, I've seen you in many uh, of the roundtables. You were also quite critical, uh, um, but that's good. It's good to have uh, people that you know look at legislation and try to, you know, look at every detail and 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 question it because that's how you improve your legislation. And this is I think this is the typical European way of of looking at democracy. And and I I'm I'm very privileged to have been at the center of this whole process. Um, it was a very very good learning experience. And yeah, again, let's hope we get it get it through Parliament in two weeks. And then uh, I'm, I'm a very happy man. But I also I mean it's I'm glad to hear that I mean it, it really sounds like you're super proud of this. And honestly, it is quite an achievement in this year where we were completely shaken with the invasion and etc. To come before Christmas for to agree on this and also the extension of to ETS2 I mean who would have who would have told that before right I mean it is quite something I read somewhere though but maybe I'm making this up because I couldn't find it anymore that you were you also had some weird encounters during this time and you were chased into the toilet by by lobbyists is that true can you elaborate a bit <laughs> well yeah I, mean, I saw yeah, this so, somewhere sorry. on Twitter <laughs> I don't want to. Yeah, it is. I mean, I don't want to. I don't want to exaggerate a bit. But you know, when when we were, especially in the week before the let's say the the vote in 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 before summer when we had this fight in Strasbourg on ETS where we had to vote down the ETS uh, legislation. I mean, the week before, I mean, my colleagues were really, really uh, lobbied in a hard way. And uh, again, you know, the margin of the majority were like five votes. 
I, I had almost this type of war room with all the faces of the MEPs with you know ground with green dots and yellow dots and and red dots where we knew that people would vote against and every colleague that you know approached me that week approached me with basically the doubt of whether he should support it or not and I'm talking about my own political group and every every vote basically you know you lose a vote and the other party gets a vote so it's a two you lose two because it's not you only lose one vote it's a margin of five that drops to three and then another one drops to one so i didn't have you know the, the i i had to chase everyone i had to counter the lobbyists in, in a very also very very let's say serious way but then this is one thing i like to do I, like two times or three times a day tops I go from my office on the 15th floor down to the third floor and I'm, I, I get a nice coffee. You know, I try to, this is, I, I don't have a lot of people. I just stay in line, get a coffee, enjoy my coffee and go you back. You should but, be you know, allowed to enjoy exact, your coffee. But that's exactly where the lobbyists stand, like the whole day. And I was talking to some colleagues and I see them, you know, surrounding me. You know, that, there's like a circle being made of lobbyists surrounding the group of people that I talk to. And, you know, can I talk to you, Mr. Shame? And it's not even a big deal. But at one moment, I was like, I, I was like telling my team, look, look, look at those group of people. I will, I will run the other way. I will really run because I was in a hurry. And they will r- start running after me. And, and it, just as a joke. And I run and then they were running after me. And, I, and then I stopped and I walked towards, I do not know on the, on the parliament, I was walking towards the plenary. And then there's this toilet at the right side. I mean, it's not identified very well as a toilet, but that's basically the toilet where the prime ministers and the ministers come when they go to the parliament. It's like near there, the, the, these, these very fancy rooms. And I entered that and they basically entered with me. I was like, come on, guys, this is, this is not an office. This is, this is a toilet. Are you really going to join me? Like, come on, this is lobbying, what, 3.0? It's like, <laughs> what do you want me to, what do you want to discuss, you know? No, you should, you should know. Nitrates or something, You should know, Mohamed, know. that whenever I go to Strasbourg as a journalist, I, I sit in the cafe and have my nice coffee and I watch all this happen, yeah. you know. The MEPs are... It's not a problem. It's not a big problem, but, and I know that. But also I'm wondering, if you're a lobbyist, do you really believe? That the keen, like the 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 rapporteur of the parliament that wrote his art his position in December already watered it down for June. That you still can influence his position. I, I I'm I'm serious. You know, it's it's months and months of research, discussions, analysis, and you come to a conclusion. Do you really believe that five minute talk with me while I'm having a coffee could have any influence? Seriously. I mean, it's better to talk to someone else. I would, I would say, uh, and but but I know that they're nervous, and I know that they do everything they can to see if they uh, if they uh, can can you know get a foot uh, uh, between the door. And 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 the crazy thing is, I've talked to every person, every association, or, um, commercial, non-commercial, that has approached me. Everyone, no one can say they've approached me approached my team and I, I denied them a talk that this is this is the problem is that if you have so many requests we did we, we were organizing roundtables and yeah and, and then yeah for me why would I you know give you a different um, um, why would I give you a different um, 
uh, why, why, why would I treat you differently than any other organization? Why would you get an hour uh, talk with me in my, in my office? And again, if they had some interesting talks and they had some interesting points of view, why not? But basically, what the, the message was exactly the same. And uh, uh, yeah, yeah, then uh, yeah, I prefer you not to harass me when I'm get the, getting my coffee, and especially after the coffee, when I, when I go to the toilet. Some privacy, some privacy would be nice, uh, uh, I would say. I know that po politicians need to be transparent about everything we do, <laughs> but I think the, I, I think you know, going to the toilet for a couple of minutes is something that, uh, that should stay privileged uh, for every person. Uh, and if not, let's have a discussion about that. I'm joking, I'm joking. Hi everyone, me again. Please do rate and review this podcast wherever you listen. It really helps us out, means we can make more shows like this and means more people can find us. Also, a quick reminder to subscribe to Foresight Climate and Energy so you don't miss out on any of our other podcasts or long-form journalism. Head to the link in the show notes or go to www.foresightdk.com forward slash subscribe. Well, because of how like innovative and, and new CBAM is, obviously, I imagine you had some quite innovative and new ideas from these people as well and industry as well. Was there anything, you know, particularly yes. crazy or out there that you can think of that, you know, people wanted included in this or you wish that you could have included, but it was just too wacky? To be funny, there, sometimes I was getting emails also through colleagues, you know, basically uh, trying to add a rule so specific that you could almost identify the postal code <laughs> where it came from. <laughs> you know, like, I was like getting, I was like getting like detailed product codes from the common nomenclature, you know, the, the eight digit code, so detailed, like you could identify this is specifically for that company. And I was telling them, like, come on, guys, this is not the way we do it. You know, this is not the, it's like, yeah, you have, you have what? You have aluminium, steel, cement, and then you have something very specific, you know. <laughs> How would that look like? Like, I, I imagine whoever wrote that email thought like, they were being really clever and... Uh... <laughs> no, but also, it also came from oh. colleagues, you know, MEPs that, that, like, yeah, this is very important for my region. And I, and then they give me these codes and I tell them like, this is so specific. We cannot do that. Like that, that code is a, it's a two centimeter, uh, uh, um, let's say, uh, uh, um, uh, nut or, or bolt, you know, coming only being made by that factory in let's say Helmond, where I come from. This is, this is not something you can, you know, how crazy would legislation become? That's one thing. But what was really uh, surprising me in a positive way, is that within the same sectors, the same sectors, you had companies that were for CBA in favor and companies that were against in the same sector, making the same products. And that was really fascinating for me. You know, just take the cement sector or take the chemi chemi uh, chemi chemistry or steel. There was such a um, there were different positions coming from basically companies that represent the same. Uh, and I'm not talking about, you know, hydrogen steel versus uh, Cokes, you know, because that that I understand that we all understand. Basically, it's a, you know, hydrogen produced steel produced by hydrogen is not even an ETS and they don't get free allowances. Uh, I mean, no, I'm talking about 
this, you know, companies with similar technologies. And then when you look at their decarbonization strategy, you fully understand why they behave like that. And I, I strongly believe in the next decade, we will see this distinction popping up to the, to the surface. And you will see that, you know, these umbrella organizations in Brussels that represent the whole sector will be split. We've seen it, by the way, also in the car industry. Yeah? That one I can mention because it was explicitly mentioned also there. I think Volvo is, is stepped out of the, the, the car um, umbrella organization. I think it's, what's the name? Ikea. Or ASEA. ASEA. I, I, ASEA, yeah. sorry. Ikea. And the main reason there, <laughs> I, yes. Sorry. <laughs> so, and the reason was incredible. They believe that they're not ambitious enough. And I think this is something that we will see in other sectors as well. Because these sectors cannot, you know, represent the conservatives exactly. and the progressives at the same time. Yeah. And if you moderate down, if you go in between, you go to an ambition yeah. that nobody help, yeah. that helps nobody. Yeah. And that was fascinating. And I, I even I, I know mean, about and sectors I'm not talking about, you know, that, yeah, they that were, couldn't they agree. Mean, the companies were explicit. Yeah, they couldn't agree. Yeah. 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 This is fascinating. And this is something that was uh, also was for me very encouraging uh -huh. because normally you talk to, to these umbrella organizations yeah. and they have one position, usually very conservative. But now I was being approached and they were telling me like, yeah, we know their position, but they don't represent us uh -huh. and we don't support that. We want, to, we want to support you on indirect emissions. We want to support you on adding other, other uh, products to the scope. And that was, uh, really? that was very fascinating for me to see. Yeah, yeah. And I'm, I'm talking about, you know, yeah, I mean, I cannot name, yeah. name drop anything. But let's say, you know, like technology-wise, the similar companies, like they're not that, that different. Like using the same installations, the same technologies, pro producing the same products. Yeah. Being real competitors within the EU. But can, can I just say, and basically, yeah. Yeah, I mean, can I just say, but I think that's a really interesting point. Um, uh, and that's in a way, I think the 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 strength of 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 what the Green Deal is doing, right? It's because it's it's so ambitious that, effectively, once upon a time, you could sort of try to tread water, basically, with a business as usual kind of approach in many sectors of the economy. You know, so you keep polluting, you reduce a little bit of the margin. But, but you basically don't fundamentally change to a net zero strategy. Yeah. But I think what's happening now with, I mean, the, the carbon market, you have to reduce emissions by about 62% by 2030. That's that's massive, right? The steep end yeah. means that you'll have to pay for all those emissions at 100 euros a ton or more. Um, and so, that's and, a lot. Eh? It's, it's a lot. And so that means that, that yeah. now, like business as usual, is no longer a viable option, right? And that's that's the beauty of what the EU is doing at the moment. Yeah, no, but that's this is an interesting point. I think it's also to 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 further identify, yeah, to further try to identify how this is changing the behavior within sectors because I believe this is, and we should not be uh, uh, we should not be sad about it because yeah. this is evolution. Exactly. This happens all the time. You know, we used to produce. You know, the the big part of manufacturing used to be in the UK using steam machines. You know, it's not a problem that that doesn't exist anymore. You know, we've improved. The working conditions of a lot of people, if like if we compare it to that age, and you know, I, 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 I my my son loves cars. You know, there's this Siri, and there's this character called Stanley Steamer, <laughs> and Stanley Steamer. You know, it's it's basically yeah, it's it's funny, but 
Uh, it, Stanley is, was, is a reference to a car. It's the steam car and a company called Stanley. And they used to be the biggest manufacturer in the U.S. And the steam engine used to be a reliable engine compared to a combustion engine. Uh, you know, and, and the funny thing is when, when the combustion engine became more, let's say, reliable, they were spreading this fake marketing campaign saying it's dangerous and it could explode. And I see parallels with electricity yeah. uh, cars today. Yeah. I see so many parallels. And this company stopped existing. And that's not a problem because we have other companies that came instead. Look at Nokia. Nokia did not want to innovate as fast as others. And they were ridiculizing, uh, you know, looking at your phone, you know, looking at having a telephone with a screen, etc. And now they are like a small company. I think uh, Microsoft owns them and they do still make some type of phone. But uh, they, they went from market leader to, yeah, almost unexisting. And this will happen to many companies that do not, you know, if, you, if, if by 2030, you don't have a strategy to decarbonize, it's done. Sorry, then either you don't have any technology and it's done, or you have never had the interest. And you're basically squeezing out free allowances. Because yeah. that's what people should realize. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, but uh, Mohamed, why that's are, what why are the, I have the impression now also, you know, after IRA and Net Zero Act, Industry Act, I had the impression that, well, let's say those that maybe don't have the fully fledged strategy yet and were playing a little bit the delaying game um, are hurt so much louder in Brussels. Why is it that those that you met that you said in, in each sector, I had the opposite views. Why are they not more vocal and outspoken? I don't know if also, for example, you want to get involved in the net zero industry act. I think it would be interesting with all you've seen. Yeah. So they will become vocal. Um, now, you know, when we, I mean, it was a bit also a bit difficult to see where CBAM would land and what the revision would be of ETS. I think still There are some parts of ETS that are revised in such a way that I think uh, are delaying uh, the decarbonization. Take steel. I think the benchmark for steel is a bit too much, but again, it was lobbied hard and I understand it, but I hope we can help them decarbonize because by 2034, when there's zero free allowances for the steel market and with a premium of 100 euros per CO2, we do not know how it will look like then, but let's assume it will be around this, this number. Yeah, then the prices, if you don't change technology, then the prices will be almost double compared to steel coming from other countries. I mean, it will be, uh, and of course, uh, uh, we will have the CBAM in place to make sure that uh, that um, that um, um, uh, there's no unfair competition. But let's say that in, in the US, they start producing steel using hydrogen um, massively and uh, get it to a cost price where it does become a, uh, competing with current technology. Yeah, then you're making you're producing in a pollutive way, and also uh, uh, compared to your competitor with high costs. What will we do then? What 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 will then be the plan? Then we're too late. Um, so, yeah, again, um, uh, I, I will be involved with the Net Zero Industry Act because I'm very interested in it, and it gives a lot of solutions uh, uh, to to help, let's say, existing uh, sectors to decarbonize. Uh, but I believe that this, that in now CBAM and ETS revisions, if they go through and if they are passed and become legislation, then these sectors, these companies will become more vocal uh, because it will be in their interest to become 
become more focal because within the current framework, they have to become more focal. Um, but again, before that, before it becomes reality, they, they were a bit, you know, hesitant. Um, and also, they, there's also a lot of solidarity yeah, because they used to, you know, speak with one mouth with, from one umbrella organization. There's a lot of history there. It's not that easy to to separate yourself from them. Huh? But it will be because at the end of the day, it's just about euros. If they see that it's not in their interest and they are running fast but are being you know, there's a lot of dead waste holding them from speeding up. Then they will either cut it or ask the, I mean, they will not just wait and, and don't do anything uh, about it. Yeah, maybe on, on the Net Zero Industry Act, I mean, I think, um, so we talked a bit about how the Green Deal and CBAM is changing the dynamic in Europe. But I think there's still a question about how things will evolve outside of Europe or how quickly that, that they'll evolve. And, and I mean, you know, most People listening to this podcast probably already know this, but the but the you know the United States has adopted a very different approach to regulating emissions from industry and and, and the energy sector to the EU. So the EU has more of a polluter pays approach, where you know we have the the carbon market, the carbon price, and then the CBAM to equalize the carbon prices at the border. But the the um, the Americans have basically not been able to agree on something like that. So so effectively for political reasons, they said, well, we'll just give massive amounts of cash to industries to decarbonize, uh, at least until 20, at least for 10 years until until 2030 or so. Um, and and so you've got sort of a polluter pays model, you know, in, in, in the EU, but then sort of like a polluter gets paid model or an innovator gets paid model, I guess, uh, in the in the US. And this actually, you know, you can you can just imagine how this can create frictions, right? But between between the two countries. So um so I think one of the now, now the US is not happy in, in a way with some of the aspects of CBAM because they don't want to pay them, but but on the other hand, the EU is not happy with the subsidies which they say break World Trade Organization rules in some cases uh, under the IRA. And NORA, by the way, some of the US's other alloys, uh, allies, sorry, um, alloys, I'm thinking too much about the CBAM. <laughs> um so so um and, and so, you know, we do have a bit of a tension at the moment where, in a way, the we're seeing that I think, like, the existing rules of global trade don't necessarily align very well with the political economy and, and, and the, the the economics of what you actually need to decut, like, to, to really create a very ambitious transition for, for traded sectors. Um, and and that also, you know, obviously also is the context of sort of the, the, sort of the tech war, right, between, between China and, and, and the US and others. So, um, you know, we've got a little bit of sort of a, a system of relatively stable rules moving to a system where people are kind of starting to, to say, well, th these rules don't suit us anymore exactly the way we want it to. But we don't want to break the international rule-based system, but we need it to evolve. And I think this is sort of a tension that needs to be resolved. And, and one of the things Agora has been working on is, is you know, are, are there sort of a, can we agree on some basic rules or principles that can help to kind of guide us? So that we can converge over time, even if we're at different points today for good reasons in our domestic context, can we kind of converge on some sort of vision that where we'll have a new set of rules, you know, in the not too distant future that allows us to reconcile these differences? I mean, this is essential. Eh? This is very an essential. This is a, a real essential point, I think, uh, for the coming years. And um, for me, when I was talking to the Americans, I always, you know, let's talk first what we have in common and what our common goals are 
And then let's have a discussion on what is basically creating issues between us. It's a very different narrative. You know, if you come to someone's house and first complain, uh, they are not open to talk to you. But if you first, you know, compliment or at least, you know, point some things where you, there's some coincide, some kind of agreement that helps. And I think this, this element of how we deal with this globally, where we need to be and what is needed for that. Also the subsidy race, how we should subsidize clean tech and um, whether we should create rules uh, under the WTO to get, you know, a clear framework for this will be essential. And then I hope also we, we can counter that with, having some, let's say, a, a, a framework on these carbon border adjustments, whether they are from a CO2 perspective or from a product requirement perspective, because both could be very interesting. Um, and both are, I think, very needed uh, to tell the world, okay, listen, um, uh, it's done. You know, we, we've done talking, we've done, you know, signing agreements and taking pictures on with, with our leaders saying that we pledge to do this and that. Uh, we, we are serious. And, and by the way, the U.S. pledge yeah, of 50% carbon reduction compared to 2005, for if you compare that to the EU uh, uh, pledge of 55% in 2030, if you correct that for where the U.S. were standing in 1990 compared to 2002, 2002 and the EU, so it means 58% reduction compared to 99. I do not know whether the Americans uh, have this perfectly, uh, I mean, that's really ambitious, and I don't see the IRA getting them getting them there. Uh, if I'm honest, um, so l l let's see um, uh, what what they will do next, and let's align that as much as possible. Instead of you know um, you know, and you what also a bit annoys me is that you cannot have like a clean tech policy being also some way to let's say change the supply chains globally. Um, uh, you know, I know that there's this Sino-US, uh, let's say, glow, uh, issues, and and I understand that they use every tool they have to to also take that into the into the uh, into the uh, equation, but it's it, it overcomplicates things a bit. Um, um, also, for European companies, I mean, to to really globally change your supply chain in order to. Uh, fulfilled IRA uh, conditions, um, it's not. It will not be that easy. Uh, so let's 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 continue to talk in a, in a multilateral uh, on a multilateral panel to see where, what what is needed, what issues we can solve there, and there are, there are another, a lot of other issues that will probably not be solved through the WTO, um, and, and then we can we can deal with them bilaterally. But um, yeah, I, I mean, we need to move, and this race. It's not a race that you win when you finish first. That's that's the sad thing about this 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 uh, climate change. It's it's a race that we win when we all finish. Um, so we need many countries to invest in clean tech, and we need them to share this technology uh, uh, as as soon as possible to make us you know keep the one point five degrees within reach. And we keep on telling this to each to each other as politicians, although knowing that you know define what's in reach. That's within reach. I mean, it's it will be very, very difficult, and the consequences will be felt, unfortunately, in countries that are not that, um, let's say, that do not have their hands on the steering wheel, and that's the sad thing about uh, about what we're doing. 
um, but let's let's hope we can we can keep uh, everything uh, every damages and all the extreme weather limited as much as possible. So this is the part of the show, Mohammed, where we ask you to look into your crystal ball. I mean, we've been doing this quite a bit anyway, but maybe we could ask you, you know, five, 10 years from now, what's CBAM going to look like compared to now? Is it going to be fully implemented? Do you expect, you know, WTO to be clogged up with challenges to it? You know, where where do you envisage it being? Well, 10, year, so 10 years from now, we're in the last... Uh let's say eight months of free allowances for the fee bomb sector. So uh, I think by then uh, they are either uh, really close to being fully decarbonized or they have a big problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, so let's hope that, uh, that, that we, I mean, that these big polluting sectors, energy intensive sectors are, are there because we need to deal with these costs. And that means if we are there, then probably the costs are at a level that could also help other regions to decarbonize the similar sectors. Someone has to, you know, get these these cost curve down, and I think we we should do it together with the Americans, uh, the Chinese, etc. Uh, but but if if I would dream, I, I would hope that CBAM is not needed, because it would mean that every that that uh, is either some kind of international carbon price, or uh, every country every country that we are trading with in a serious uh, way has also introduced this uh, uh, this uh, uh, carbon tariff. Uh, or carbon price, and that that would be something I would uh, I would really encourage. My my goal is a CBAM to be never implemented, and to not raise one euro of of revenue. That would be really good because that would have. I mean, I I think a couple of weeks ago I had a talk with someone. I said I hope that the the two years that I've worked on CBAM would be useless. That's my <laughs> hope, and they were like, "But what do you mean? Because that means that it's not needed." Uh, and that means that uh, there's, uh, there's, there's something happening globally when it comes to CO2 pricing. And that would be, I think, the ultimate goal. Um, and I think all en- uh, environmental economists agree. It is a very good way. You know, pricing is a very good way to incentive businesses, to incentivize businesses to take care of these costs. If you, if you quantify them, if, they are, if they're felt in the, in the figures, the yearly figures, they will do everything, and they're really good at that, decreasing uh, the costs. And uh, yeah, and it has been a successful, um, uh, uh, you know, instrument in the EU for the last years. And I, I think we can also help uh, decarbonize many, let's say, big industries globally. Uh, and I would encourage that. But uh, until then, hopefully, CBOM is fully implemented, works well and has inspired many, many other regions in the world to, to do the same. That would be something that, uh, that I would be uh, very, happy, very happy with. A rare example of where we want redundancy, right? That's, uh... and, and of course, I hope that when I walk in the Netherlands, you know, at the random street, people would point that's at me and the say, you know, that's, guy. that's the guy who introduced <laughs> Sibam. I'm joking. Sibam guy. I'm joking. <laughs> that would be funny. What about you guys? Do you I have any uh, <laughs> crystal ball predictions for um, you know one thing or whatever? Oh, oh, there's well, there's I think there are yeah there are a few things that I could still see happening. So one is, I mean, I expect that there will be, despite the fact that some countries will sort of try to pursue their own suits, I also think there'll be others that will try to push back. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that we still haven't seen the full um, the full story play out on how much pushback we get. We, we saw the other day that yeah. Um, that you know, China sort of asked the the, the WTO Trade Environment Committee to to 
to start to, to look at the, the EU CBAM and, and ask the EU to explain why it's compatible. And this is seen by some as sort of a step towards a challenge by China. And so I think we'll, we'll have some challenging uh, of, of this mechanism. I also think some issues um, you know, in the CBAM will need probably still a bit more, more work. Some of the, the detailed methodologies, for example, around how you account for electricity emissions, which downstream products or precursors are, are, are ultimately included and how and how quickly. Um, and even the export rebate question, which, which in, in my mind, I think Mohammed might disagree with me on this, but but I actually think it's it's actually it's quite essential to the effectiveness of the mechanism to, to, to ultimately have ones. So, no, but I agree. Yeah, it's not that yeah. I don't agree. But he asked me yeah. in ten years. I hope that we resolve these issues in the next two and a half year. <laughs> Sam asked me in ten years. If he asked me. I see a lot of issues. I mean, the number yeah. of delegated and implementation acts that still need to be worked out. these poor officials that have uh, to do this. It's, 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 yeah. it's amazing. Yeah. You know, what they Jesus. have to do between April and October is a lot of work. And then, you know, implementing, yeah. working with the member states, you know, methodology for indirect emissions. Yeah. And there's so much work still to need to be done. But that's, that's why I like the fact that we have this transitional period of yeah. two, two and a half years. And in that period, a lot of things, checks and balances, and things can be adjusted accordingly. But but again, he asked me in ten years, and then I'm I'm, I'm dreaming a bit. Huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I think in, if well, if I if I to align with Mohammed on ten years, I, I'd say I think I actually would. I think many parts of the world will struggle to implement robust carbon pricing the same way the EU does. And so, I, I actually think in the long run. Um, the the, the CBAM, it may indeed be a bridge to 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 some some other system um, based on you know global product requirements or something like this. Um, so that would be my hope that it that it plays out that way. Yeah, we will see, won't we? This is the last part of the show we're getting into now. The what's caught our eye over the last I don't know week or ten days or so in the energy transition in general it doesn't have to be CBAM, of course. Um, what's been catching your eye, Mohammed? Apart from CBAM stuff, what's been the big energy climate things that you've been keeping an eye on? In general, I mean, uh, I mean, I think the next COP will be very interesting uh, to see, um, you know, the a couple of things, especially the, let's say, the, the, the country pledges, the national determined contributions. So there's still a gap there and there's not much uh, time left. Uh, let's see how the, how we will work that out. And um, I'm, I'm, Really interested in the Critical Raw Materials Act um, and the Net Zero Industry Act. I mean, very fascinating, very interesting to see how we could um, what we could do there. Um, I mean, there's a lot of interesting stuff coming. I mean, I'm working on the industry, uh, in, let's say, the Industrial Emission Directive that uh, regulates all emissions except the CO2. Also, quite interesting work there. And there's a lot of, let's say, there's a lot of climate, energy slash agricultural files coming up. Or are being worked at today. Uh, you know the nature restoration law, the um, su- sustainable use of pesticides. Uh, there's a lot of things in that area. Let's say the farm to fork area of the of the European Green Deal. Um, so a lot of work, and of course, um, you know we still have one year of work, and then elections. So there's not a lot of time left, you know, to, in a due diligent way, work through all the legislation and, get, and pass them in Parliament. I mean, 
Um, if 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 I look at the number of times translators need to make sure that every every legislation is translated so that we can vote, that's two three months. So basically, we have seven months. Uh, if I'm honest, I think the last uh, yeah, let's say April mm. next year, and then there will be elections. I think what end of May or something. Uh, maybe that will be the last Strasbourg session. So that means that um, we have until December, January to finalize the critical raw materials and the industry act. Uh, because else there will be a lot of unnecessary delays, uh, which is exciting, mm-hmm. which means a lot of hard work. Um, yeah. Um, and, and yeah, that, that's, that's, that's basically the agenda for the coming, uh, for the coming months. For, and I think every member of par- European Parliament working hard, trying to finish. And then your intention is to come back? You want to run again? I want to run again, but at the same time, you know, in politics, you can never predict your career. Uh, first yeah. of all, the party needs you to uh, needs yeah. to want you to continue, and then there's elections. I mean, at the end of the day, it's people that decide um, who they want them, who they want yeah. them to represent. And the complexity there is that you know there's this dilemma of doing great work in the European Parliament for every member of the European mm-hmm. Parliament and not being yeah. known in your own country. And it's not I, seen. I, I, yeah. I'm going to tell yeah. you a small joke. Uh, just just two days ago, I was uh, I was visiting a home, a house with my wife to see if we uh, she has the intention maybe to move. And I was uh, and uh, the woman, an older woman, was asking me like, um, "So uh, what do you do?" I said, "I'm I'm in politics." Uh, okay, interesting, interesting. Uh, and what? Uh, I'm a member of the European Parliament. Oh, very guy, very interesting. Like that other guy. Um, uh, what's his name? Uh, Shahim. I said, oh, that's me. Ah, I've been following <laughs> you. I read everything about you. It's so funny. Really? I didn't know it was you. Uh, but what's your name? I said, I'm Mohammed. <laughs> oh, I thought your first name was Shahim. I said, no, that's that's my last name. So it was so funny. She was like, and the woman who could tell quite oh some people things about me. She was really following what I was doing, <laughs> she had no idea. I was, oh my the, God. I was that person. Oh, a fan, beautiful. <laughs> Just to give an example about, no, but they, 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 and this is a person that, that follows, you know, what I do because she's from the same yeah. city. But then I was standing in front of oh, her okay. and she had no idea. Uh, and <laughs> <laughs> you're referring like, oh, like that other guy. <laughs> I was that other guy. The Sudan guy. Yeah. <laughs> There's also not a lot of members. There are also not a lot of members of parliament in the Netherlands of the European Parliament. There are 29. So, uh, but I mean, mm. again, so, they, but we are not that known in our member state. And I think this 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 yeah, holds yeah. for men, many many members of the European Parliament, except yeah. if you're from, let's say, maybe a small member state where. Uh, European politics is really, really, uh, let's say, uh, more key or something. Mm. But I, I mean, the same holds. I think if you asked uh, the German public, do you know who are the members, the German members uh, of the European of Parliament? Not. Maybe they can mention yeah. one. Um, one. Yeah. yeah. This holds for almost every yeah. member state, and that's that's a big uh, problem because a lot of good work has been done by many mm. colleagues from many political groups. Uh, it's not uh, me talking about my group. I've seen. Great people at, at, at from left to right, uh, doing really good work for Europeans, for us all, and then uh, yeah, and then you go into mm. elections, and then people basically yeah are very skeptical about Brussels or about Europe, and uh, a- acting as if you know member states act as if you know decisions in Brussels overcome them that they have no influence there. I mean, this is this is a bit of this Euroscepticism is a bit. Um, 
Yeah, it's a bit strange, um, uh, but but in any case, uh, let's see what happens. Um, but I'm excited, and I hope to. Uh, it's my first term, so I hope to do another term. Though I would love it, uh, but if not, then I've had I think a, a really great. Uh, I've had I've learned a lot. I've had a, a, a lot of fun, and I tried to do my best. And um, yeah, I've, I've had uh, I, I've done most of the things I think mm-hmm. you can do. And with a lot of pleasure. Including, including being chased into a toilet. Including being chased into a toilet. I will never forget that. And, uh, but I'm, I'm motivated. I still have a lot of ideas. I like the work. I have a great team. So if we can uh, do it another for another run, I would love it. If not, then it was my privilege. And um, yeah, then let's see whether where I will go career-wise, but um, probably go back to science or something. Let's see. We'll, we'll just wrap up the final part of the show. Michaela, what was catching your eye? the last 10 days or so. Well, I read a lot about the e-fuels drama in the German press and everywhere. It did come up already today in the discussion, unavoidable. Um, Yeah, and it's funny how, uh, so it went on for a week, you know, like we saved it and science-based and you have it. And then yesterday, little information coming in from China that maybe, you know, new rules coming in there that would even mean no combustion engine sales anymore before 2030. And then our former director, Patrick Greichen, tweeting, okay, you know, the decision might be taken elsewhere and it might come earlier than you think. So mm-hmm. interesting turn of events there. <laughs> But what about you, Oliver? What's caught your eye over the last week or so in anything energy or climate related? Yeah, I mean, I might I might stretch the deadline at like a, a back a little bit more than a week. But one of the biggest things that I think has gone relatively uncommented um, uh, is, I think, in the Net Zero Industry Act, the the targets for carbon capture and storage mm-hmm. um, that are in there in the provisions. I think um, this is sort of like a, a, a you know, if, if it's implemented the way it's proposed, uh, like that, that would be a huge revolution, I, I think, in in uh, for for CCS infrastructure, um, which up until now, frankly, has struggled to to really get going. There are some specific projects you can point to, but but they're very very small scale. So the the idea that we would sort of dramatically scale CCS to to try to um, as like a key part of the infrastructure we need for the transition. Um, uh, and, and basically require oil and gas companies to 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 pay for it. I think is uh, is a very significant uh, development. Mm-hmm. Um, also, a bit of a dangerous one as well, actually, because it's it could be good or bad de- depending on, on how we how we do it, right? Because the thing is, carbon carbon storage is a, is a finite resource, and you need to make sure that you're only storing the things that really really need CCS. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a good uh, add on there. Do it right. Yeah. Uh, the thing that's been catching my eye, unfortunately, is Brexit related because it can never be escaped. Apparently, um, this Copernicus uh, EU satellite system, which relies a bit on uh, EU funding and also UK funding because they're part of the European Space Agency, uh, they basically said that there might be this funding shortfall for future missions, and that's related to the Green Deal because they want to monitor CO two emissions, um, surface sea temperatures, land surface temperatures more closely. Um, and because the UK wants to be a part of Copernicus, but it's been on hold because of all the to and fro in about Northern Ireland, um, there's been this like two years of no funding. So now they want to negotiate membership, but does that mean less fees and all this kind of stuff? So, 
Um, we'll see how that goes. Probably another 10 years of negotiations to come, but um, we'll never be free of it, I think. I think that's the show, guys, um, because that's all we've got time for this week. Um, thank you to Mohammed, Michaela, and Oliver for helping us to wade through uh, CBAM on today's episode. Uh, please do get in contact, any of you who may have any thoughts about the, what we've had in the discussion. You can reach us via the normal channels, Twitter and so on. Uh, guys, this is part of the show where you get to uh, advertise yourself. What's the best way that people can reach you to talk about today's episode? Mohammed, can people tweet you or... Uh, can tweet me. They can send me an email. They can harass me when I go to the toilet. Uh, no problem. Michaela, <laughs> uh, how's the best way to reach you? Um, at CitizenSane one, my Twitter handle. Still Fantastic. on Twitter, holding on. And Oliver, and you? Yeah, um, you send me an email, and hopefully, I find it in my inbox. Brilliant. Thanks again, guys. Oh, you can also tweet the show as well at What Matters Pod or email us at show at whatmatterspod.com. Um, thank you so much for listening. David will be back at the wheel for the next episode. Uh, meanwhile, I'll catch the rest of you over on the Policy Dispatch, which is the little podcast brother of What Matters. Um, and the I'll little sp- podcast yeah. brother? Yeah, yeah. We're trying hard, you know. We're always in the shadow of you guys. I'm just joking, of course. You've even been on the podcast, haven't you, Michaela? So you. I've been a, a guest and whatnot. Um, but yeah, and I'll see you all next time. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye.